Well, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 5 and 6. And uh, I've just been reminded this week, even in a few different ways, of the, uh, the, the providence of God and the, the good providence of God. And He is indeed always in control of all things. And yet, um, sometimes things work out in such a way that you just... Um, have special maybe appreciation for that and uh it's happened a few times this week and one of those ways is the fact that we are in verse uh the, the place that we are in colossians on this day of all of all days uh to be looking at this matter of walking in wisdom and so turn with me to, to chapter four and verses five to six and uh let us read this together and then uh we will consider what it says Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, And with these words, the Apostle Paul ends the body of his letter to the Colossians. Of course, he has more instruction, uh, some, some final greetings and such that we will work through. Uh, but in terms of the, the main body of the letter, that it, what he wants to write, he, he concludes with these words. Now, the Colossians, they lived in first century Rome, well, in Colossae, but in Roman, the Roman Empire. And for them, evil was all around them. They lived in a pagan society. They were absolutely the minority. And Christians were misunderstood, and they were opposed regularly and consistently in a number of ways. Uh, in many cases, what they said and did being badly mistor- mis, uh, distorted, including even some who believed they, they were cannibals uh, because of you know, the wording of the Lord's Supper, eating the flesh and body of Christ. That, that was a rumor that spread about them. In many ways, they were misunderstood. They were oppressed and opposed. Uh, Paul himself is writing Colossians from prison. Uh, If we need a reminder of just how uh, things could go for Christians in the first century. And as he winds up the main part of his letter here, he calls the Christians to wise living in the midst of this evil age, this evil time. And so this text also summons us to the same thing to wisdom, to wise living, to carefulness as we navigate and live in a world that still uh, opposes God and His righteousness. There's a carefulness and a shrewdness required in the Christian life. And as Paul calls us to this, uh, he's gonna, he focuses in on two things. I was holding up two there. Two things. Um, the testimony of your life and the testimony of your words. Talking about actions and our words. And both of these areas matter. Both of these areas matter to the Lord. And so Paul mentions both. So he begins here with the testimony of your life. He says in verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So Paul is telling the Christians in the Colossian church to live. That's what walk means, right? To live wisely, to live with wisdom before outsiders, that is, before those who are outside of the church, unbelievers, that's what he's talking about. 
So live wisely before unbelievers. He adds then that they're to do this, making the best use of the time. You may be familiar with the King James or other translations that, that translate this as redeeming the time. Redeeming is to, to buy something back. Uh, that This word time is sometimes used in the Bible to refer to the age. You know, if you think of the signs of the times, or we use this, we use it this way a lot. You know, um, these are crazy times we live in. It's a crazy season, crazy period. And this is what Paul seems to have in mind. So I think what he's saying is that we live in an evil world, an evil time where unrighteousness abounds and we are to make the most of it. We're to buy it back. We're to redeem it. We're to walk in wisdom, making the best use of the times that we live in, taking advantage of any and every opportunity for good that you find yourself able to take. Ephesians 5 says, in a similar passage, a parallel, says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So it's very similar to Colossians. And he continues, Making the best use of the time, same words, because the days are evil. Right, so he states a reason there. Why are we trying to make the best use of this time? Because the days are evil. We're trying to do the best we can in the seasons that we have. So we're to walk in wisdom before outsiders. Now, I think we say this regularly, and I, I do want to just say it again. Uh, it's important that we always remember and keep clear that your life and my life is not the gospel. Right? The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus has died for sinners and he has risen again from the dead. That all who repent of their sin and trust in him can be forgiven of their sin, their debt before the holy and almighty God, and reconciled to him. Forgiven, granted eternal life. This is a gift of God's grace received by faith. This is the good news. This is grace. There's forgiveness of sins. Our lives, therefore are not that good news. The good news is a message about Christ. Nevertheless, even so, our lives still matter. They still matter. They still testify to the message we proclaim. They are part of our testimony to the watching world. In Romans 2, 24, Paul writes, For it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he's, writing, he's talking there about uh, those who claim to be the people of God, take the Lord's name, uh, they, they're his people, and yet through their disregard of God's law and the things that concern God, they actually blaspheme God's name to the nations. Law-keeping is not a means of salvation, but is rather a fruit of saving faith and is therefore befitting of Christians. And if God's people disregard His law altogether, live in unrepentant righteousness or just a casualness towards sin, then it brings disrepute upon Christ. It blasphemes God. And in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes of uh, bondservants or slaves there and their relationship to masters is to be Appropriate in a Christian way, They're, these bondservants are to act, these slaves, uh, in submission to their masters. This is fitting with, with what God says, what he calls them to, and the reason he gives is so that the name of God and the teaching 
may not be reviled. So if they were to just live recklessly and sinfully, this would revile the name of God and the teaching and the gospel itself. It would bring disrepute to Christ. This is a a reminder again of why there's such a thing as church discipline, as we've been discussing in our midweek times. Uh, It certainly warns and, and brings punishment to the individual who sins, but it also testifies to the outside world that unrepentant unrighteousness is a serious issue. And it retains the purity of the visible church, upholding its testimony before the world. And so this text calls us to walk in wisdom. Now, this presents us with uh, this principle to walk in wisdom. It doesn't tell us exactly what that means in every circumstance. It would be nice if it did, uh, but that would make the scriptures really long if, uh, if God were to take into every possible account that we could find ourselves in and tell us exactly what we ought to do. And so this raises a question, as we're called to walk in wisdom, what does this look like? What does it mean? How do we do this? And so I just want to take a couple minutes to consider this, to consider how do we discover wisdom? How do we determine what is wise in a given situation? Well, we do know the source of true wisdom. Colossians 2 verse 3, if you flip back, tells us that in Christ, it's in Christ that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. True wisdom is found in Christ and therefore it is found in his word. Jesus himself being the eternal word of God. Moreover, as the book of Proverbs makes clear, it is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. Moreover, it is a, wisdom is something that can be learned and it, it needs to be learned. We sometimes just think that wisdom is something that should just be a direct download from God if we just sit here or something or ask for it. It just gets directly downloaded. Now it is true, we are to ask for wisdom. We are to pray for wisdom. Kevin uh, mentioned James 1 verse 5. We are told by James to ask if we lack wisdom and God will give it. This is true. Moreover, uh, in Proverbs, we're told this, or yeah, in Proverbs, we're told the same thing. But this is not antithetical or opposite to studying and seeking wisdom. We do both. We know wisdom is found in God's word and we're called to pray that we would possess it. So listen to Proverbs chapter two. I'm just going to read a few verses Solomon writing says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding in his word, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path 
for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. So you see that you're asking God for it and seeking wisdom out, searching it out from his word, from his mouth. So we know the source of wisdom is found in scripture and we're to pray for it. This is how we obtain and gain wisdom. And one way of thinking of wisdom is it is the the skill of living a godly life, of, of, of reading and understanding God's word and then being able to apply it to whatever situation we are facing in whatever area of life. And again, this comes through studying the scriptures and through prayer. So again, this is not a, just something we ask for and it's a direct download. We're also called to search it out. And the promise is we will find it. God will give it. So if we are to know wisdom, we must look to the scriptures. We do not begin with what others will think of us. This text is not saying, when he calls us to walk in wisdom before outsiders, it's not saying, well, consider what outsiders will think is wise and then do that. That's not what this is saying. Wisdom is defined by God. Again, found in his word. So we don't start with what others might think of us. We start with what God says. We don't start with what, you know, whatever we just happen to think. We don't start with what the majority might desire. We begin with the word of God and with prayer. Again, this is a, again, an interesting text given our present situation of trying to determine what is the wise thing to do right now in this season for us as a church. In many ways, it's the million dollar question right now facing Christians and churches all over the place. What does wisdom demand of us in the midst of lockdowns? What does wisdom demand of us when our government demands, makes certain demands of us that don't fit with Scripture? With all that we know of the present circumstances and the virus, this is the debate. This, in many ways, this series or this text could be developed into a long series as we try to flesh out the implications of walking in wisdom before the world. Of course, we're not going to settle it all uh, right now. But just want to say a couple of things as we think about how to navigate and, and how to figure out what is wise and what we ought to do. Again, first thing, wisdom begins with fearing God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It begins with the fear of God, appealing to Scripture, not, not the fear of man. We, that, that can't be what drives us and motivates us. Not even the fear of death should be what motivates us and guides us. Again, in fearing the Lord, we look to His Word for guidance and wisdom. It is the source of wisdom. The world, the government, this is not the ultimate source of wisdom. Again, early Christians in the Roman Empire, oppressed, just 
one of the ways they were to offer incense to Caesar. Not a big deal to many people at that time in the Roman Empire. They have this pantheon of gods. They just offer incense. It's not a big deal. It's not like every person had to be actually convinced that Caesar was some sort of god. But you just offer this because it's what we do. It keeps us in good standing. It works well. If everyone does this and goes along, we stay out of trouble. It's best for the community. And, and you, Christian, won't do it. It's such a small matter to most people, but they wouldn't do it and they suffered for it because they were beginning with Scripture. Yes, as Christians, we're to acknowledge the rightful place and authority of government But sometimes wisdom and truth brings us into conflict with the government. Sometimes wise living is met with punishment, with jail even, in the case of Paul as he writes Colossians. Second, I think it is good for us to just be careful that we don't get sucked into simplistic understandings of what it means to love our neighbor in these times. For some Christians, it seems that really the only or at least the primary matter as we think about what it means to love our neighbor in these days is the coronavirus. That's really all that matters. Therefore, wisdom demands that we shut everything down. We stay home. We live our lives online. That's how many seem to view it. Anything else is unloving to our neighbor. If you put anyone at the slightest possible risk of this particular virus, then you're not loving your neighbor, you're failing as a Christian. This is what that group of pastors did when they wrote to the, the, the church in Steinbach, calling them to repentance, that open letter, if you remember that from several weeks ago. It was sin for them to want to have a drive-in service, unloving to those who've suffered from the coronavirus. So we need to be careful we don't buy this kind of thinking, this simplistic understanding of loving our neighbor. It's just more complicated than that. I, I, hope you see, I hope we all, I trust we all see this. There is, a, of course, a threat of a virus that should be a concern for us as we consider loving our neighbors. But there's other issues. There's other concerns. There's joblessness. There's depression. There's suicide. There's people being prevented from working and providing for their families. Not everyone can just go home and work from home. Life's not like that. It doesn't work that way. The rise of depression, suicide, the overthrow of God-given rights of personhood, assembly, and worship, all of which are actually guaranteed in our charter, our own laws. The rise of tyranny, governments acting above the law by unilaterally passing restrictive orders without legislative consent, without public debate about these matters, just hand it off to medical experts who issue these orders. There's terror. People are terrified, some people, of leaving their house, of getting a virus. People being encouraged to turn on their neighbors, turn them in if they suspect they're not keeping some of the rules. Children being raised with this state of panic and fear. We're being convinced that living life on the internet is a perfectly normal way of life, legitimate. The goalposts in all of this always being moved. Uh, the, the UN itself, not, again, the UN, not, not a conservative organization, 
as reported in NPR, not QAnon, NPR, telling us they, they expect twice as many people this year to die of starvation because of the economic disaster, because of all the lockdowns. Nine million extra people they predicted would die. I don't know how it has played out exactly. Because of the trickle-down effect. When the economy quits, the poorest of the poor suffer first and most. And all of this for a virus that does have a very high survivability rate. It's deadly, yes, but does have a high survivability rate, over 99%. If this is what we do now, what happens when the plague really does arrive at our doorstep? You know, what kind of a world are we heading into, going to leave behind for our children and our neighbor's children? So what does love demand of us in this moment? It's a little more complicated than just narrowly viewing it as, you know, making sure no one's at risk of this virus. So we just have to be careful we don't buy into overly simplistic ideas of wisdom and, and loving our neighbors. And thirdly, on, and finally on that point, uh, wise action can be different in different situations. As situations change and differ, what's wise now may not be wise tomorrow. What's wise here may not be wise in Peru in this moment. And so I think we should just remember that as we consider what other Christians or churches are even doing in other places and to consider that their situation might be a little different. Just to be careful before we are passing widespread judgments. There might be things we are missing or don't quite understand. So obviously, you know, much more could be said about um, what exactly is the wisest course of action through this. And we will continue to talk about this and we'll gather even Wednesday and discuss these things a little bit more as we seek this wisdom, uh, as we seek to obey this command as a church and as individuals to walk wisely uh, before outsiders making the most, making the best use of the times. But Paul goes on here in verse 6, not only does he talk about how we live, but he talks about how we speak the testimony of your words. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. The Bible has a lot to say about our words and how we speak and what we say. Here, Paul says our speech is to be with grace. To have gracious words is to have a winning quality or attractiveness that invites favorable reaction. It is speaking with winsomeness, respect, with courtesy. We combine that with this idea of salt. Paul is saying our speech is to be edifying and attractive, upbuilding, not aimed at tearing down or putting people off. Christian speech is not to bludgeon people, but rather we're trying to, or you should be trying to, win people over. This is what John Calvin writes on this. He says that Paul requires suavity of speech, such as may allure the hearers by its profitableness. For he does not merely condemn communications that are openly wicked or impious, but also such as are worthless and idle. For he reckons as tasteless everything that does not edify. So speech is primarily to be edifying. Now, some people will understand this to mean that there is no place for a firm word or for even words that would 
condemn another. However, that's not the case. Not only does salt bring flavor, but it has a certain pungency. It has a certain harshness to it. And it is appropriate in moderation. Right? Seasoned with it. I think if we are only ever harsh and firm and sarcastic, then I would suggest that we're counter to what Paul is saying here. But there is a place for these things. Further, we should not take this call to have gracious words to mean that if we do this, our words will always be well received. Sometimes we think that. Well, if we would just say it right, then people will receive it correctly. But again, the response of other people is not the determining factor of whether we've obeyed in this matter. Uh, Luke chapter 4 is a good example. If you remember when Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, the people marvel, it says, at his gracious words. So he's speaking gracious words. And then you keep reading and he speaks about how a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And this is in Capernaum. And then they respond, it says, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill so that they could throw him down the cliff. Jesus spoke gracious words and they wanted to kill him for it. I think this is just all the more condemning of man's sinfulness. That when another speaks profitable words, gracious words seasoned with salt, they want to rise up and condemn him. And in the case of Jesus, they wanted to kill him. So gracious words doesn't always mean they'll be received well. But it seems from this, the thing that we must consider is the intention of our speech. What are we aiming for? What are we desiring? Even if we're speaking direct and even biting words at times, do you seek the ultimate good of the one to whom you are talking? Even if you're saying something difficult for them to hear, the Bible also says faithful are the, wo- or, yeah, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So we should not be out just seeking mic drop moments, trying to just burn people with comebacks. As you engage and speak, seek to do that with an attractiveness, a reasonableness. As Paul says elsewhere, let your reasonableness be known to all. Even when speaking firm. And certainly as we proclaim God's law and righteous standard to people, in order that we might also preach the gospel to them and help them see their need for salvation. But as we proclaim God's righteousness and His righteous standard, this will bring us into conflict. We know this. And yet we can do this with a winsomeness and with a reasonableness, with gracious words that are seasoned with salt. As we do this, ultimately, for the good of the person to whom we're talking. So Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. One commentator rightly says that what Paul is getting at here is that if Christians practice grace of speech, it will not desert them when they find themselves suddenly confronted by the necessity of defending their Christian belief. If you are regularly working to have gracious and edifying speech, then when the moment comes where you're forced to give an answer, you'll know the proper way to respond. You'll be conditioned to the right manner of response. In a number of places, it's interesting, 
the Bible tells us, uses this language that we're going to have to give an answer to people. Uh, maybe most famously is 1 Peter 3.15. But in your heart's honor, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Sometimes this is taken, I think often it's taken as, if you just live your life really good before people, eventually someone's going to come to you and say, you have something different in you. Tell me about this hope that lies within you. And then we can answer them. Now that might happen to you. Praise the Lord if that does happen to you. But that's not what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 3. That's not the situation he imagines. Uh, that, that he's just talking about someone coming to you, specifically asking you about the hope that you have within you. The context there is suffering for righteousness' sake. The questioner in 1 Peter 3.15 is not so curious about this spark they see in a person, they want to know more, and they're positive toward it. Rather, they're grilling the Christian about why do you do the things that you do? And Peter's saying that in that moment, Christians are defending that hope that is within them. They're explaining why they do the things they do. They're explaining the hope that lies within them. This is why we don't do things like give incense and worship Caesar. It's similar what Peter's talking about to what Paul is saying here in Colossians. Living wisely will find, will result in Christians being called to explain our actions, which run counter to the ungodly world around us. Again, you can see it in Colossae and in the Roman Empire. Why don't you just offer incense to Caesar? It's not a big deal. Don't you understand? Your actions hurt all of us. If the Romans get mad at this, why would you not just join us in this action? And in fact, in all of our practices in worship, why do you despise us this way by refusing to do the things we do and to go along with us? Or, why would you insist on meeting together when there's a virus around? It should not surprise us that the unbelieving world would not understand why we would do this, why we would insist upon it. It is normal for Christians to find ourselves in hot water living amidst unbelievers, ruled by unbelievers. This is not new, and we're called here to practice gracious speech so that when the hour comes, we'll know the proper manner of responding. As much as ever, we are in need of wisdom. We are in need of language that is edifying and gracious, designed for the benefit of, of those we speak to. Christians are increasingly being made to give a defense of our actions. Again, every week we're hearing of more brothers and sisters being fined and getting their names in the paper and being forced to give an account explain why it is they do the things they do. And friends, I, I would encourage us to not be ashamed of those people that suffer. Paul had to ask his churches to not be ashamed of him as he suffered in prison because that is the tendency, and we see it now. People just trying to meet, to obey the Scriptures and preach Christ 
and be with human beings being fined for this, being considered evil and wicked in our world. And we, when these are our brothers and sisters, we dare not sell them out and, and, and act high and mighty because that hasn't happened to us yet. Remember, Christ said one of the marks of his children is to visit his people in prison. And so even if that doesn't come to us, we, we stand with those to whom it does. Let us be praying much, seeking the scriptures that we may lay hold of wisdom, making the most of an evil day. Our Lord is worthy of this effort, of our digging into scripture to try to search these things out and to call out to him in prayer. We will no doubt have opportunity to testify to the supremacy of our Lord over all things in days to come, including his supremacy over our government. We will have opportunity to testify to the gospel, to testify to the fact that man is set free from his fear of death, this fear of death which ravishes our land and consumes people by pointing them to the fact that there is a cleansing of that conscience that ravishes them, that leads them to have this fear of death, that they can be cleansed by the blood of Christ, that they can be renewed, they can be reconciled to God, that this fear of death can be done away with in Christ Jesus. We have opportunity to testify to this. And may we speak those words graciously as well. And so may God have mercy. May he grant us our requests for wisdom and lead us in the days ahead. And may he have mercy on those around us that others might yet see the emptiness of their worldview, the fragility of life, and have their sins be exposed by the light of God's word and repent and look to Christ for forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you praise. We do give you thanks for your goodness. Father, forgive us where we have sinned. We have, we have sinned in, in every way. Who among us has not done things that is shameful? Father, help us to trust that Christ and his salvation is, is greater than our sin. Father, do your good work in us to Form us into the image of your Son. Guard us from sin. Keep us from the hour of temptation. Lead us into righteousness and holiness that we might adorn the gospel. Father, where we fail, may we be quick to repent and demonstrate that fruit as well. And Father, we do call out to you for wisdom. We pray for much wisdom as individuals in our workplaces and the friends that we have and wherever we talk with people, interactions online, face-to-face -face conversations as they are able to take place with our neighbors, friends, family, everywhere, with one another here. May we speak to edify and to build up. May we speak truth. Father, we, we pray for wisdom for your churches throughout our province, throughout our country. 
to know how to respond. Give us patience with one another as we try to figure out what to do in the ever-changing times in which we live. And may we indeed walk wisely before outsiders and make the most of the time. Father, we pray that you would help us and have mercy on us and be gracious to us for the sake of your name and for the joy of your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.